do you think I'm the expert on this? You look at my life and you think, oh, who, who could we get to speak about apostasy? Let's get Nathan to do it, you know? <laughs> so that was a little bit of a concern. But here we go. So we're going to jump in. Um, it, it looks like a mammoth outline, and that's because it is. There's, a, there's quite a lot to say, but it's, your outline is not as mammoth as my small book that I have written. Uh, but we're going to attempt to get through it this, this afternoon and then uh, take questions. Let me just start my clock here. So... Deconstruction is a, is a buzzword, uh, but it's also for some people a bit of a bogeyman, something that they don't really want to talk about, it instills fear. It could be a cliche. Some people wear it as a badge of honor. Um, some decry it with spite. Some claim that deconstruction is a core part of their identity. Uh, some people just simply want to make observation about it with, and try and remain neutral. Uh, but it is a term that has been increasingly used in evangelical church circles probably for about the last 10 years, for so the last decade. Uh, and while not a new idea, which we'll look at as we progress through this, uh, this afternoon, uh, deconstruction really has taken a hold as popular and, it, and polarizing, uh, especially because of the rise of social media. So as of this week when I was preparing, there are 400,000 plus posts on Instagram alone with the hashtag deconstruction. Okay, 400,000. The vast majority by people who've either deconverted from Christianity, who are uh, claiming to be progressive Christians, and I'll try and explain the, the difference as well. Uh, people who have embraced the LGBTQ agenda or maybe have entered into a relationship uh, <clears throat> some who have rejected the historic Christian doctrines of the Bible, or simply some people who are just on a mission to crush anything that reflects, uh, they think this re Christianity reflects a kind of a, a white Christian patriarchy, and so we're, they're just out to crush it. Uh, the posts that you can read on Instagram, and I don't recommend that you do it, but they are usually a plethora of memes and insults that pour scorn on Christians. They mock us. They hurl anger at the church, uh, and alongside these comments, they kind of espouse two main thoughts. One thought is that they regret what they formerly believed, and they have glee at escaping that. Okay, so that's kind of where they're coming from. If you if you read, and so you can you can search social media. I didn't do Facebook or or X or Twitter or whatever it's called because you just Instagram was enough. But what you will see is you, if you Google deconstruction, you'll also come up with countless websites that offer therapy for you to walk you through your deconstruction. You will find groups and websites that will help you facilitate deconstruction. You will find numerous self-help books, podcasts, YouTube videos, and even conferences that you can attend to be taught how to break free from the toxic kind of religion of your past and reject Christian doctrine. <clears throat> And deconstruction is generally driven by what I would call celebrity deconstructees, okay? So maybe some of the most pertinent names in this, uh, in this kind of sphere are uh, Rhett and Link. Uh, you might know them. They were formerly Campus Crusade for Christ uh, staff, but now they uh, are YouTube sensations, uh, and they host uh, a channel called Good Mythical Morning, uh, and it's basically, it's a... It, it's a multi-million pound industry for them and as they have walked away from Christianity and embraced the culture. Uh, so they're probably uh, <clears throat> the most uh, high profile uh, 
most well-known amongst the young people of, of, the, of our churches. Uh, other names include Abraham Piper, which is John Piper's son. Uh, a guy called Marty Sampson, who is a worship leader and a songwriter in the, in the Hillsongs churches. Uh, if you grew up in the 90s like I did, you probably listened to DC Talk. Uh, Kevin Max, he was one third of, the, uh, of DC Talk. He is, has deconstructed. And then, of course, uh, one that would be very familiar from our own uh, Sovereign Grace stables, Joshua Harris. Uh, but the trend of these celebrity deconstructees, uh, it, it extends beyond their spotlight. It, deconstruction extends beyond those who have high profiles or large social media followings, book deals and podcasts. And, but the, the high profile people who, are de- who have deconstructed have kind of normalized it and are encouraging it amongst the kind of the us ordinary folks, if you like. In our churches, they are encouraging us to go along with the, on our own deconstruction journey. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. One podcast I listened to this week uh, said that uh, they threw out some stats about deconstruction, and they said sixty uh, percent of people raised in the Christian faith will deconstruct after high school. So it's a huge, huge problem, uh, and it only seems to be increasing. And so, if you're here today, it's probably uh, because this topic interests you, or maybe you just came to hear the guy with the British accent. I don't know. You know that. I don't know how exciting that is, but um, but the chances are we probably know someone ourselves, perhaps a friend, perhaps a family member, perhaps someone who's a social media friend who is thinking about deconversion, uh, maybe has already embarked on that pathway. Uh, they might not even be aware that that's what it's called, but you're aware that they seem to. Ah, they've got questions and they're walking away. Perhaps there might be even some of us in the room who have been challenged in our thinking and you know, by something that's happened in life or something that was said to us or by you know, the online discussion that we've been caught up in that, that has challenged our core fundamental beliefs. And we're, and we're rocked and we're thinking, well, what, what does this mean for me and how do I think this through? So whatever your reason for being here this afternoon, I'm, I'm grateful that you're here and I hope that this will serve you because I think it's imperative that as Rob said at the beginning that we address this as Christians with grace and wisdom because it's so prevalent and increasingly so Uh, but we might need to do it for our own sakes or for the sakes of those that we love so it's it's really important and I'm grateful for the opportunity now today is going to be we're we're basically going to be flying at 30,000 feet so the, the Q&A, hopefully, will get into the details, but what I have for you is, is, is a high-level view. And my hope is to avoid misrepresentation. My hope is to avoid jumping to conclusions. My hope is to avoid making unhelpful accusations or coming up with reductionistic kind of views. Um, and, and I also want to avoid creating fear as well. Uh, 60% of people will deconstruct. That can be a fearful thing. Uh, But I I want us to see that we can have faith in our God who is big enough to handle anything that can be thrown at him. And so my hope is that we'll leave here encouraged and with our faith strengthened. But I do want to provide a few categories for thinking through this phenomena, which really resonates with the spirit of the age. Uh, And so here's here's the plan. Um, You'll notice that I've called it deconstructing deconstructionism, and I'm going to use two Ds all the way through. So I love alliteration. So I'm going to try and define deconstruction. I'm going to diagnose deconstruction. I'm going to dissect deconstruction. Then I'd like to develop a response to deconstruction. And then I'd like to direct 
those who are struggling with deconstruction to some help, and then I would like to disappear for the Q&A and just let Rob and JT handle the answers. All right, so let's jump into this, defining deconstruction. We hear a lot of talk about it, but what does that term mean? Well, originally, deconstruction was a, literally, uh, a literary analysis that was developed by a French philosopher called Jacques Derrida in the 1960s. Basically, he came up with this complex theory which was to challenge traditional ways of understanding language and meaning. So, in simple terms, what this guy did, put forward was that uh, language and words, they're not just a straightforward tool for conveying fixed, clear meanings, but rather language is a, is a combination, a system of signs and symbols that are always shifting and open to multiple interpretations. And so therefore, deconstruction was this idea that language is ambiguous and instable, and we just have to kind of, you have to kind of make your own meaning depending on the context in which you are Speaking, So he argued that there was no ultimate fixed meaning in the text of, uh, of written words uh, and that interpretation was always subjective and it was always context driven. And so he, he came up with this idea that you have to start pulling apart and the underlying assumptions of language and seeing contradictions in the text to unpack and uncover hidden layers of meaning that you could decipher from what you were reading. That the, the authority didn't lie in the author, it lay in the, the reader. And so that was kind of his literary analysis. But the, the, the phrase deconstruction then has come into the common vernacular where it now simply means a, a critical dismantling of the traditional uh, modes of thought. Okay? So the concept of deconstruction, this kind of idea of pulling apart the assumptions of one's cultural background. To, to question certainty ha, has become one of the central cores of postmodernism. And if you don't know what postmodernism is, it, it basically is the idea that there's no one big story or one big truth that is the same for everybody. We all have our own truth. But then Christians have also seized the term and used it with respect to the Christian faith. So if you want a kind of a definition of theological deconstruction or faith deconstruction, uh, it comes from, the, one that I've, the best one I can find comes from this book, which is by uh, a lady called Elisa Ch Childers. It's called Another Gospel. Uh, and this is a kind of autobiographical sketch of her own deconstruction story and her wrestling with the questions that she uh, had that struck at the core of her faith and how she then rediscovered true biblical Christianity and faith, which is just a hope-filled story. But she defines it like this, and it's in your outline. In the context of faith, deconstruction is the process of systematically dissecting and often rejecting the beliefs that you grew up with. Sometimes the Christian will deconstruct all the way to atheism. Some remain there, but others experience a reconstruction. But the type of faith they end up embracing almost never resembles the Christianity they formerly knew. Traditional understandings of the cross, the Bible, and the gospel get taken out of the trash. <clears throat> then John Bloom on the Desiring God website, he says, In the Christian world, deconstruction translates to critically questioning traditional modes of Christian belief. And it often refuses to recognize as authorities those perceived 
as occupying privileged Christian institutional positions who supposedly speak for God. What he means by that is they, they throw out the baby in the bathwater. We don't accept God's word and we don't accept those that teach it to us either. So it's a deconstruction for the simple among us, which is ba- primarily me, is it's a, like a game of Jenga. Ever played Jenga? The, 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 the tower block game, which is built of the little blocks. And deconstruction is when you've built the tower, you then begin to push and remove the blocks. And eventually, the tower gets more and more unstable, and it starts to wobble. And then eventually, it comes crashing down. That's what we're talking about when it comes to deconstruction. Now, another... Uh, term that you might hear in this kind of circle of deconstruction is the term exvangelical. Okay, now an exvangelical, it, it's connected to this trend, it's another hashtag, it's another label, another movement, uh, but it, it, it's a, again a relatively new uh, term that is used by people who are identifying that they were once part of the evangelical church world. But now they're trying to distance themselves. And they do that by saying, I'm, a, I'm an ex-evangelical. So uh, Blake Chastain, who he himself is an ex-evangelical, uh, he leads, uh, writes for uh, his own blog, which has become a leading uh, ex-evangelical blog and a post uh, podcast. He's credited with in- inventing this term, and he defines it like this. He says, similar to the way we use terms like ex-husband or ex-girlfriend to acknowledge a prior relationship that has ended. Ex-evangelical acknowledges an individual's prior place within the evangelical movement and culture that they have since left behind. Ex-evangelical is an easily accessible shorthand to acknowledge our past experience. It nods to our heritage and how it has shaped us, but does not make any assumption about what we individually or collectively now believe. And if you were to search exvangelical on Google, you would find a, a movement of people who are sharing their stories of deconstruction. Uh, they'd be sharing about how they've questioned and reevaluated their beliefs and practices and values uh, that they were taught within their evangelical community and church that was growing as they grew up. But in most recent times, from trying to kind of track in the way that the term is being used, it's now not just uh, used as a label to say, I was once an evangelical. Now it's become a kind of uh, a badge of honor for someone who is actively opposing the evangelical church. So they, they, they've moved beyond just wanting to distance themselves from the evangelicals, but they have, they've moved to actively opposing evangelical Christianity. And so they espouse progressive, secular, anti-biblical attitudes, and they dismiss the, the Christian faith as, as a myth and a hoax, and, and uh, I pity the fool that believes in it. Do you know what I mean? It's that kind of thing. So that's our definition. Let me diagnose deconstruction for you now. The challenge is, despite me giving you a formal definition, there is considerable confusion about what it actually looks like because it doesn't seem to be a one-size-fits-all kind of uh, diagnosis. So when someone says, I'm deconstructing, you really want to ask, well, what do you mean by that? And usually they fall into what I can discover four main categories. So I hope this is going to be helpful. Uh, And what you'll see as we progress that they... They include the good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, and we're going to progress from the good to the bad to the ugly uh, in, that, uh, in that process, in that pattern. So the first one is constructive deconstruction. 
It's like if you're a builder and you want to renovate a house, you sometimes you need to knock a wall down or clear the roof or do some, you know, if you're remodeling, you need to take apart before you can rebuild. And so often uh, in this constructive deconstruction, uh, parts of the building, if you like, to use that metaphor for the Christian faith, they get, they get removed, they get knocked down so that someone could rebuild them, could reconstruct upon the foundation uh, to put up an overall kind of better building. So, um, so that's kind of constructive deconstruction. It, it, it's a deconstruction that says, I'm going to question this. I'm, I'm going to ask a question of this faith so that I can move to certainty, like Jared was talking about this morning. Uh, it's a deconstruction that enables reconstruction, a, a strengthening and an improvement which may not occur otherwise. Now, sometimes the remodeling, um, I'm sure if, I don't know if we've got any builders or people in the house, uh, but sometimes, you know, the, the remodeling that is required requires such extensive demolition that no one can live in the house while it's going on. And sometimes that's the case when it comes to those who are deconstructing, but they stick with it. They keep doing the work so that there can be a final reconstruction that is uh, better it puts up a better building. It's a, it's a strengthened building. So sometimes Christians go through long periods of deconstruction, sifting and sorting through the things that they've been taught, the things that they believe, weighing them against scriptural truth, which is an important facet, discarding those things that perhaps they've been taught that, were, that came from a faulty view of the scriptures or a faulty view of God or a faulty view of church culture. Uh, and they're trying to sift through uh, the ideas and perspectives, making sure that what they believe is in line with the Bible so that they can emerge with a stronger, more robust, more invigorated, more mature faith. Uh, this is what Francis Schaeffer did in the 1950s. If you know who Francis Schaeffer is, in 1951, he moved his family from the USA to Switzerland to launch a new mission. Uh, and he immediately found himself plunged into a kind of a spiritual crisis of faith. Uh, and as, as he started to contrast the New Testament description of, the, of Christian love with the kind of the suspicious, angry, separatist culture of uh, American Protestantism at the time uh, that he had been part of for the previous two decades, he, he, was, he, he describes himself as being torn to pieces as he questioned whether, I, I hear Jesus speak about love in this way, but this is what I see in his church. And it really caused him a, a, a crisis of faith. But for months, he agonizingly dismantled his beliefs and, and then began to reassemble them according to the Bible and the things that he saw. And as a result, Schaefer says he emerged with greater confidence in true core, uh, the true core claims of Christianity. And he had a deep, life-changing, ministry-shaping conviction that Christian truth and love were inseparable. So he, he experienced constructive deconstruction and that's I think not an uncommon thing uh, in some of our churches amongst some people I think it serves as a good illustration of the kind of deconstruction that can be helpful uh, because it, it moves us towards a more faithful incarnation of the indestructible gospel of Jesus Christ and someone with this diagnosis is not saying I'm abandoning the faith or seeking to redefine it it, it, it probably was better termed they had a crisis of faith and as they searched the scriptures for certainty they processed their doubts and disappointments and disillusionments and came to a stronger place 
Now, that might be relevant for the people that we know, maybe for some of us in the room this afternoon. So let, let me just clarify a couple of other things. That questioning your doubt and, and having doubts is not the same. It's not immediately synonymous with deconstruction. Okay? It doesn't questioning and having doubts about the Christian faith does not mean that you are swinging the pendulum from one side to the other and that your you know apostasy is inevitable okay that's not the case we can ask our questions we can ask raise our doubts but a couple of encouragements here don't do that on your own deconstruction uh, is bad news when people try and do it as an island okay when you are in your own head, alone with your thoughts and your questions and doubts, that is a dangerous place to be. Okay, because you've got you're just in your own head. You're just listening to yourself all the time. Now, the more potentially dangerous thing is to do it on your phone or your computer with a whole bunch of other people that are telling you you are right. Because that won't help you. You know, we've got to recognize the way that social media works. And I, I'm not a computer genius, but Google gives me the answers because it gives me the answers to everything. Um, even about social media. You know, social media works on, this, on algorithms uh, that, you know, you, you type a search in and then it sends you information back and you click on something and then it, it kind of tracks what you're looking for and your interests and uh, what you like. And, uh, and then it starts to generate information for you According to its algorithm, it says, oh, Nathan likes football, so we'll get him some more, you know, maybe he hasn't thought about this sport, maybe he hasn't thought about this, and maybe he wants to buy this shirt, and maybe he wants to watch this TV show, and maybe he wants to go to this place, and all of a sudden it creates this worldview for me out of nothing almost, or out of a simple search for football, and so we just need to be careful that if we're deconstructing and we're searching for that online, be aware that it's going to amplify and um, <clears throat> <coughs> and uh, whatever the word is, amplify and exaggerate and reinforce uh, deconstruction for us. It's going to find those with similar beliefs, with stories, with, with perspectives on deconstruction that are going to then you know, stir the pot more and more and more and lead to more and more and more uncertainty. So it's, it's a good idea not to just get into the echo chamber of social media because it won't help us at all. Uh, I heard this this week as well, which I thought was a great phrase that stuck in my head. Uh, I think it's in your outline. Someone just said, we should do our theology in the light so that we can stand on it in the dark. I thought, oh, that's a great way of just like, we should do our theology in the light. And I think what they meant by that was that we should bring, bring our struggles and our doubts out into the open amongst our church family. That we, we don't need to be embarrassed if we're... Amongst friends, amongst those that love us, we can bring out our concerns and our questions and, and talk to people who love us, who care for us, who can walk beside us, who can help us wrestle with the big questions of life and find answers for us. And they're doing that because they love us and they know us the best and they want to point us to Jesus. So if you are here and you have got questions, they deserve to be addressed. Don't stifle them, but do so with an honest inquiry you know honest questions seeking truth seeking answers you know if you're if, if you're a young person and you have grown up in the church and you arrive at a point where you just you know I can't just rest on mum and dad's faith I I need to find out whether I really believe this for myself that is great and I think this church 
is a safe place to raise those questions and those concerns and those doubts. Uh, I am confident in every single one of the pastors of this church, having worked closely with them for like nine or ten months now, that any question, any doubt that is raised by someone who is thinking about deconstruction will be met with compassion and grace and patience and good faith, uh, the exactly, exactly what you need. Uh, but they will also help you with rigorous theological help uh, so that you can process those disappointments, disillusions, and doubts. Um, and I, I would just say as well, God is big enough to handle any questions that we've got. Uh, I, he's not afraid of our questions. You know, he, he in fact, I, is waiting willing for us to raise our questions to come to him because he's ready to respond and biblical christianity can withstand rigorous examination uh, of its truth and of its goodness which i think is part of the battleground in our day you know there is a yeah i can see that it's true but it's not good and i think it holds up both truthfully and in the goodness that it puts forward there's a quote there by Ian Harper, but I don't want to uh, read it out in full. So you can just read it uh, in your own way. But he, he just says, you know, everybody's faith journey is winding and complex. Uh, and so we just, but in Christ, we have everything we need to help us move towards the answers. Okay, so that was constructive deconstruction. So, uh, a second way is deconstructing cultural influences and church practices. There's a small group of people online who use deconstruction to try and separate out true core historical biblical uh, doctrines and faith from harmful or toxic kind of cultural influences that have uh, come into the church or kind of church practices that were driven by unbiblical kind of realities. Uh, and so they see certain things going on in their corner of church culture and they say, I don't think that's right. And so they, they use deconstruction to say, I'm gonna, I need to unpick that and unpack it so that I can find out what that was built on and whether it's in line with the scriptures and whether I need to hold to it. And some of the topics that people do this are misogyny, racism, political tribalism and politics, uh, social justice, and so someone with this diagnosis where they're trying to separate out biblical Christianity from the practices they see in their churches or the cultural influences that they're concerned are filtering into the church, they're not trying to uh, leave the faith, I don't think. They're not trying to reject uh, orthodox Christianity, but what they are espousing is, I'm disappointed that, that not everything that calls itself Christian actually reflects Jesus. That this has more to do with the American dream than the Jesus of Nazareth, of the scriptures. And so they want to separate out cultural baggage that distorts and, and redefines the Christian faith in, un, in unhelpful and harmful ways. So they, they're after a stronger faith, not no faith. They want more of Jesus, not less. Um, so perhaps a better term is disenculturation or disentangling. Uh, Hunter Beaumont in this book, uh, Before You Lose Your Faith, which the Gospel Coalition put out, which is all about deconstruction. It's a series of essays that different people have contributed on the topic of deconstruction. It's an excellent book. Uh, but he writes about 
disenculturation. And he says, he, it's in your outline. He says, this is the process used by missionaries that, go, that try to differentiate the gospel from the culture. That having moved from one culture to another, missionaries see the gospel like a kernel that is protected by an outer husk. And the missionary's job is to ensure that the gospel kernel is free to enter into the new culture without being captive to its old husk. So they're trying to separate out the core from the periphery. It goes all the way back to the book of Acts, when the early church had to differentiate the gospel from you know, first century Judaism, you know, so that it could go into the Gentile culture. They, they tried to differentiate what was the true core things that needed to go forward and what was just their, their immediate culture that could be jettisoned. And we need to do a similar thing. We need to differentiate the gospel from evangelical subculture. Now, that doesn't mean that the gospel doesn't have any culture. The gospel does create culture. It's not intended to be culture-free. You... you you know, culture-free Christianity, this idea that you can do Christianity without any culture, you would, it would be easier to find a unicorn. Um, but we're, we're called to free the gospel from a culture so that it can take root in another culture. And so the gospel is, is it, it, it's supposed to create culture, but not we just transport American culture to Ethiopia and we just dump it on them and say, that's how the Bible tells you to do it. No, we've got to be wise enough to separate that out. Uh, Thirdly, deconstructing doctrines. There is a larger group online that use deconstruction to uh, describe ways at which they have come to the conviction that the Bible is wrong. And so therefore must be jettisoned or adapted or altered. This is the process where they have questioned and critically dismantled the beliefs of the Bible that they once considered unquestionable. Uh, and they, they perhaps have questioned them because you know, they've, they've met someone online or in the flesh or they've had a new experience or they picked up a book that they found engaging or they've interacted you know, in, a, in a digitally connected world uh, and found someone on the other side of the planet who thinks the same as them. And so they, they're deconstructing doctrine. Some of the examples of this, people have questions about the Bible, the Authority, inerrancy, inspiration, how we're supposed to interpret it. They have questions about the the violence of the Old Testament and how that fits with the the character of God that they hold to. People are trying to redefine or reject the reality of hell and judgment and the sinfulness of humanity. Um, Complementarianism and the role of women in the church is another big area. Uh, Biblical sexual ethics the LGBTQ debate and agenda, the cross and the atonement and the exclusive claims of of Jesus. And they raise like, well, maybe there's a universal salvation that we should be teaching. And so someone with this diagnosis is not necessarily rejecting faith altogether. I use the, for the tape, the recording, you know, the quotes. They're not necessarily rejecting faith, but they are saying that scripture is wrong, that it doesn't have the final authority, that it, it can't tell us uh, what we need to know for morality and theology. Instead, we need to appeal to, we're, we're, we're wiser than the ancients. And so therefore, we can listen to science and culture and psychology and sociology uh, and learn from history. And so they're kind of taking the doctrines and redefining them or rejecting them so that their faith, 
is more palatable in a modern world. Um, so it's deconstructing doctrines. Uh, and I would f- be fair to say that this is the general position of those who regard themselves as progressive Christians. That they are on a progressive journey towards making truth, you know, accessible to everybody. Um, And then finally, uh, deconstructing Christianity. There is a significant number of ex-evangelicals who use the term deconstruction to describe their departure from Christianity altogether. This is the most uh, extreme form of deconstruction. It's probably the most frequent or common way that you will see this used on social media. Uh, And much of what is called deconstruction today actually falls into the category, as Rob said, said earlier, of deconstruction or deconversion or apostasy. Uh, Folks going through the process of critically dismantling their understanding of what it means to be a Christian that results in their abandoning of the Christian faith. Uh, It it doesn't necessarily mean that they're replacing it with anything. Some might. Some might replace it with a new belief system or explore some kind of alternative spiritual path. Most end up atheistic in their approach to life. So someone with this diagnosis, they might claim to want to explore the issues, but ultimately their motivation is not to understand, but to undermine. So they raise questions, not because they, they're not honest questions. They don't want to know like, okay, help me to learn more about this or help me to understand where you're coming from. They raise the questions so that they can undermine someone else's faith. And there is a mistrust of anything that they say smacks of old evangelicalism, which is what we would just call the Bible. So this kind of deconstruction, this is deconstruction by sledgehammer. It's out to demolish, to smash the Christian faith into a mess. And it often, often the targets online are kind of Christian caricatures. So they take aim at hypocritical Christians. They take aim at the fire and brimstone preachers. They take aim at the medieval church, you know, corruption, the crusades. You know, everything that's been done in the name of Christianity, you know, how could that happen? It must be wrong. They they take aim at the Christians, uh, our supposed anti-science stance. They take aim at the fact that we are all bigoted and judgmental and intolerant. And they say even even their church leaders, you know, the celebrity pastor scandals, even their church leaders don't really believe this nonsense. See how they live. And so they take aim at us. And they do this on the belief that they are responsible to uh, debunk and defang the propaganda and the the rhetoric and the torrent of lies that the church has been spinning for 2,000 years. That they are the people who see clearly that they are the ones who, you know, we're here to tell you that the emperor has no clothes on. Uh, And so they are um, adamant and... uh, you know, social media is uh, a dangerous place to be uh, when these people have got you in their, in their targets. So there's those four categories of, of kind of diagnosing. And so it's important just to, when you meet someone, wh- where do they fall? Because how you deal with them is going to be determined by how they are defining their deconstruction. Let me jump to number three, dissecting deconstruction. So we've tried a a definition. We've tried some diagnoses of of kind of what it looks like. But what are some of the reasons that underlie 
a person's deconstruction. So as I've, as I've read around and, uh, you know, listened and read and, and done some study, several common themes begin to emerge. Now, this isn't exhaustive. It's, it's certainly not definitive. We may have even hinted at some of these already, but these are the kind of common themes that you find that underlie a person's deconstruction. So the first one is this. It's an abuse of power. You know, the last few years, blogs, podcasts, news outlets, internet, they take delight in reporting the newest scandal to hit the church, whether it be real or whether it be perceived. The uncovering of sexual abuse within the church, financial misconduct, pastors wielding their position and their power and their pulpit to bully those who are supposedly in their care. Um, the social media will tell you that there is no end to the hypocrisy of the church and the catastrophic failure of its leaders. Um, so that's a, a, abuse of power is one of the primary reasons that people deconstruct. Uh, now, don't misunderstand me. Some people have been deeply hurt by the church and by its leaders. They have been mistreated. They have suffered injustice. They have experienced spiritual and emotional and physical and sadly sexual abuse. They have endured toxic church environments and they have resolved to leave that church and the faith behind um, sometimes they flee for their sanity. Sometimes they distance themselves from the stigma of what happened to them. Sometimes they want to get away from the memory of someone else's sinful actions towards them. Sometimes it's, you know, for the safety of their own lives. And I want to have huge compassion. I have the compassion of Jesus for those people and a sensitivity to their, to their experience. Um, but I'd also want to say to them that Terrible as those things are, deconstruction is, does not have to be inevitable. Um, now, I don't pretend to have suffered in any way in comparison to those who have experienced those kind of abuses, but I, I've been hurt by the church. You know, I, I could take my shirt off and show you the scars. Um, you, but you don't have to walk away. You don't have to walk away. You can cling to Jesus and his word and you can find grace and the power of the Holy Spirit to heal and to thrive again. Um, but that is, un unfortunately, it's a sad, sad, sad reason why people do deconstruct. Secondly, there's no place for, or no safe place for doubt. So many individuals begin to have doubts or questions about their Christian faith related to specific doctrines, the Bible, the existence of God. And as they engage with other worldviews or other philosophies or scientific discoveries, it prompts them to re-examine their faith. And they find out, oh, this doesn't, this doesn't seem compatible with what my expanding intellectual horizons are. And so they, they have questions. And then the way that those questions are handled puts people off. Instead of the church being a safe place to process things, well-meaning leaders just tell folks, you shouldn't be believing that. You shouldn't be asking that question. And people get brandished, uh, branded and brushed off as troublemakers, pesky questioners. 
And then people walk away from those interactions thinking, man, alive, this church and this whole Christian faith is like a house of cards. It's just going to come crashing down. With one question, I'm done with it. So unfortunately, no safe place to doubt is a reason why people deconstruct. But as I said, I, I do believe that Covenant Fellowship Church is a safe place to ask our questions. Thirdly, the moral demands of the Bible. As society moves, some people feel that their faith is out of step with the culture around them. So they reevaluate their beliefs in light of the cultural changes and they see a kind of a misalignment between their personal values and morals and the teachings of the Bible. And they find it difficult to reconcile their beliefs with the stance of the church, with the teaching of the Bible. So we, the, the, the most common and familiar one is the LGBTQ uh, rights, biblical sexual ethics that clash, gender and roles, social justice. And the Bible is considered by these people to, you know, it's oppressive and repressive. And therefore, it needs to be rejected. Some people read the Bible and they say, wow, I thought God was supposed to be the hero of the story, but he's a villain. They read the Old Testament and they think, how could he kill all those Canaanites? Or the Midianites or whatever. I don't like him. They don't like the demands of the Bible. So they seek to redefine the historical understanding of the Bible or reject it altogether. Number four, fourth reason, the problem of suffering and evil. This is, uh, again, a primary reason why people deconstruct. You know, it's, I, I, it's the call that you never want to have, isn't it? Like you, you see people on the movies or you hear stories of, of people and, the, and they take a phone call and it's cancer. Well, that, 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 that kind of thing doesn't usually happen to me. But something happens and the nightmare becomes a tragic reality. And, and one of the first questions that goes through your mind is, Where's God in all this? If he's a good God, how, why does he allow suffering? If he's all powerful, why hasn't he stopped this bad thing from happening to me? Uh, if you, uh, I, I'll be careful here because this is very close to the bone, but the last three weeks for our extended family have been some of the most difficult times, uh, honestly. So um, Claire's sister, Three weeks ago, was diagnosed with breast cancer. Uh, and so she needs to have surgery. She needs to have treatment for breast cancer. Then last week, last Thursday, the same sister, their 17-year-old son, died in a tragic skateboarding accident. Freak skateboarding accident. And I took the call. And you know what the first thing is in my mind is, uh, what is going on here? Lord, like, they're just dealing with cancer. Now this? And I can understand how people can deconstruct. You know, you get those calls and you think, wow. If I didn't have a robust faith, I would say I'm done with this God. But by the grace of God, I say I, I, I don't understand it. I might even do things differently. But I don't have all the information. God does. He knows the end from the beginning. He's working out his eternal plan. He is good and he is trustworthy. You know, when we are faced with the unspeakable and whatever that might be for you, 
we're, we're all faced with a choice. We're all faced with a choice. We can either open up our hands to our Heavenly Father and fall at His feet in trust and worship, or we can flick Him the middle finger and say, I'm done with you. Or to put it another way, we can, we can throw all of our raw doubts and questions and laments and piercing grief into His capable lap, or we can gather up all of our mistrust and our suspicion and our hurt and our accusations and our fury into a fist and declare him to be evil and incompetent or even non-existent. We're, we're all faced with that choice. But my approach has been, in the words of, of Peter, John 6, when, remember Jesus feeds the 5,000 and then, you know, the next day everybody leaves him. And he, and he says to his disciples, do you want to go as well? And Peter says, where else are we going to go? For you have the very words of eternal life. What, what, what hope is there? What hope is there apart from you? But some people walk away from the faith sadly because of suffering and evil. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings so that you may rejoice and be glad with his, when his glory is revealed. And then Lisa Childers says, only within the framework of historic Christian gospel do these statements bring any meaningful comfort. And I think that's true. A fifth reason is hyper-fundamentalism. There are those that deconstruct that come from very strict legalistic backgrounds where every detail, detail of their life was micromanaged. The clothes they wear, the books they read, the movies they watch, the music they listen to, the, the interests they pursue, the people that they court. And because the church failed to differentiate between essentials and non-essentials and between principles and practices, uh, when these people that grow up in the, in, with this kind of strict legalistic background, when they encounter a, a Christian from a different worldview who's, you know, not even liberal in the worst sense of the word, but just enjoying the freedom that God has given them, they go, wow, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. I'm in for that. You know? And the Christian bubble that they grew up in bursts and their comfortable beliefs and their spiritual paradigms are challenged and thus they deconstruct. Because their alternatives have become so attractive. Uh, number six, disregard for authority. We, we live in a culture where there's an increasing distrust and disdain and disregard for authority. Who made you the boss of me? Who are you to tell me what to do? And so people deconstruct. Number seven, the world offers a more attractive Option. Through history, Christians have encountered unbiblical worldviews and philosophies that have competed for their attention and obedience and loyalty. And these are often put forward as being far superior to Christianity. And so if you're not going to go with us, if you're not going to go with the flow, you go in against the flow, you'll be a social outcast. You're not welcome here. And so deconstruction becomes the kind of the sexy thing to do. You also meet some people who say, well, you know, since I deconstructed, I have never been more liberated. I've ne this is the happiest I have ever been in my entire life. 
And the reality is, you know, if those people are honest, deconstruction occurs not because they have been pushed away from the church necessarily, although that might be the case, but more that they have been pulled into the world. That there is something that is pulling them and alluring them and seducing them. Maybe it's the, the YOLO, you know, you only live once, or the FOMO, you know, the fear of missing out. And the desire for other things, the, the, uh, as John says, you know, the, the trappings of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life and possessions, the lure of wealth or sex and freedom of finding your true self. That's it that becomes so alluring. These counterfeit gods become so big that they say, I want that more than I want the true God. And it happened in the New Testament. Paul wrote to Timothy, Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And so some deconstruct out of a desire to justify sin. You know, the old quip wisely observes what the heart wants, the mind justifies. And I, I read stories this week, sadly, of people who uh, have big questions about God and they kind of deconstruct and then later you find out they were enmeshed in usually sexual sin that started way before their big questions started. Now having identified seven common reasons, I just want to say this, that deconstruction is not usually just caused by one simple standout reason. It's usually a combination, it's deeply personal, it's uniquely shaped by a person's experiences and it's a combination of factors usually mixed in with some kind of secret motives, all working together to bring someone to the point where they say, I'm, I've deconstructed. So how do we respond? Well, avoid the easy and expected responses. What are those? That we get angry, we get cynical, we be dismissive, we be uncharitable, we speak unkindly, we assume the worst of the person that's deconstructing. Or we blame and shift uh, the blame, vilify them. Oh, they were never really Christians in the first place. Or, sadly, what the church has done in, in history is we just tell you what we believe louder because somehow that's going to be the answer. These impulses don't help anybody, in my view. They don't help the church and our reputation. They don't help the reputation of Christ and they don't help the person. So how do we respond? Well, fortunately, it's not rocket science. There's no secret source to this. We just respond as the Bible calls us to respond, as it has done for the last 2,000 years. Uh, this is stuff that we largely know, but we just need to be reminded of. Number one, we shouldn't be surprised by deconstruction. It's not surprising, Trevin Wax says, that in a secular age, people wrestle with doubts and questions in every culture and in every age. Parts of Christianity seem implausible. Aspects of orthodoxy seem strange. Truth is strange. We didn't invent it. Fiction can make more sense. And heresy always seems reasonable. That's, that's the truth for, throughout history. Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, you know, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. The pathway of deconstruction is, is, is nothing new. In the Old Testament, the book of Judges repeatedly recounts the people of God did what was right in their own eyes. That's deconstruction. In Jeremiah, Jeremiah prophet, God speaks to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 2 verses 12 and 13. You know, when he says, you know, my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me 
and they've hewn out cisterns for themselves. They, that's deconstruction. They've left, me, they've left me because there was pleasure that they wanted somewhere else. They thought something else would satisfy. Those are deconstruction. Jesus warned about it. Matthew 24. Because of lawlessness, lawlessness will be increased. The love of many will grow cold. Jesus tells the parable of the soils or the sower. Mark chapter 4. Only one of the soils produces good fruit. All the others explain why some fall away. Some fall on the, on the path and are snatched away by the birds. Some planted into shallow soil but get scorched and wither. Some are choked out by the weeds. The early church saw many abandon the faith. Paul experienced it happening around him. We've already talked about Demas, but there's a couple of other chaps with unpronounceable names, Hymenius and Philetus. <laughs> And Paul would speak about this in 2 Timothy. He would say, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. So we shouldn't be saddened by it. Uh, sorry, we should be saddened by it, but we shouldn't be surprised by it because the Bible anticipates it. Errant teaching is not something new. You know, deconstruction as a term might be new, but wrestling with questions of faith is a normal part of growing faith. Okay? What did Jared say this morning? He quote, you know, I believe, help my unbelief. It's the call of all of us. You know, as we, muscles only grow as you exercise them. They grow stronger as you exercise. And so it's a normal part of faith to ask questions. Uh, and I want to say this as well. When it comes to deconstruction, we should normalize it rather than sensationalize it. Okay? The internet wants us to sensationalize it, but we need to bring it down from up here as like, oh my goodness, what is going on to down here? Because then we can answer the questions that are being asked. We have the right perspective on it and the right view of its size and its dynamic and we can approach it without fear and with faith. And we're called to extend grace and patience with the, you know, if you know someone who's struggling with these things, be their friend, be available to them. Get around them with a warmth and a gentleness. Move towards them in humility and love. Recognizing that, but by the grace of God, there I go. John Newton spoke about habitual tenderness in how we deal with one another. And habitual tenderness, he says, comes because we're aware of our own weakness and unworthiness. And we live upon the grace and the pardoning love of our Lord. So if, we, if you have someone that you know who is struggling with deconstruction, let them know that you love them more than anything. Before, after, during deconstruction. They are not a project to complete or a problem to solve. They are a person to love and care for. We've got to extend grace to them. Sometimes that is tender. Sometimes grace is tough. You know, in Ephesians 4, Paul says, Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. So if you're with someone who's expressing their desire or their, you know, for deconstruction, you know, what do they need to hear from you right now? And the way that you discern that is you ask questions. 
Try and, try and ask questions and listen well. I, I put some, I think, sample questions in your outline, like, what do you mean by deconstruction? You know, what's their diagnosis? What, what do you believe in the first place? What, why do you believe what you believe? What has drawn you or influenced you to believe that particular thing? Or what is it about Christianity that you are rejecting? Was there something that precipitated this crisis or this questioning? And we want to be people who heed the words of James in James 1.9, you know, that we are slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to speak. And then we want to be patient. Once we're extending grace, we want to be patient. We need to resist defensiveness. You know, we don't have to defend God. He's big enough to defend himself. He's up to the task of handling questions. We don't want to tackle the questions because we feel threatened. God doesn't. You know, we, we and the person asking the questions may have weak faith. But the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, is immovably strong. Then you want to recognize as well that deconstruction is not some abstract academic exercise. It's often painful and personal. But not all of it comes from a point of antagonism. Sometimes it comes from genuine curiosity. So be quick to listen, slow to speak. Another response is do your homework. Jared touched on this this morning when he spoke about apologetics. Is there something that we could read or listen to that would equip us to help that person get answers to the questions that they are asking? Uh, a great book. I'll recommend this. This is one of my favorite. There's obviously, the, you know, when it comes to apologetics, Timothy Keller's The Reason for God is excellent. Um, I, I think it's, it's fantastic. It, it's, a, it, it's one of the most helpful things that I've taken skeptics and people doubt with doubts through um but you really need you know your brain functioning you know it's it, it's it is tough so i like this one better uh <coughs> because this is written for teens so i you need tim keller but this one i find, i think is this is called uh, confronting christianity 12 hard questions for the la the world's largest religion by Mer rebecca mclaughlin and i like it because she's a brit you know, and so she understands the world the way that it needs to be understood. Uh, but she, this is a really, really, it's a great entry level uh, book. Now, when it comes to apologetics, let me just say this as well. If someone comes at your questions, don't hand them the book. All right. Read it yourself and help them. <laughs> because no one is going to be like, here's, this is going to solve all of your issues. The, the likelihood is they're not going to read it. So either read it yourself and help them or say, let's read it together. Okay? But also don't make the mistake that deconstruction is purely intellectual. Okay? It's, it's often, as we've already said, it's a combination of things that are going on. And it's rarely and solely an intellectual problem. It's, it, there's so much more going on. But I would also encourage you, right? Don't be, fret, don't be scared to say, I don't know. And then go away and get the answer or say, let's go get the answer together. Or let me take you to someone who does know. We need to resist the temptation of being omnicompetent like we are. We know all the answers. Okay. No, let's go and find someone who can help. And then, and also one, one piece of information for faith. There is no question that anybody can ask 
that hasn't already been asked for the last 2,000 years and been responded to, okay, thoroughly. <laughs> All right? So we can have confidence that people will find their answers. It might not be the answer that they are looking for. It might not be the answer that they want. But there are answers to questions. Fourth, pray. I think that goes without saying, and I'm running out of time. Pray for them. Uh, you know, we want to talk to people about God, but we want to talk to God more about people more. Does that make sense? Yes. If someone's struggling, I want to talk to you about God. But man, I need him to do what I can't do. So I need to talk to him about you more than you need me to talk to you about him. Pray. Pray. And then if you can, which we all hopefully can do, point them to Jesus. Show them Jesus in the scriptures. Live out the real deal of faith in front of them. And let your life and joy and hope testify to the power and reality of Christ. Now, finally, uh, if you are here and you're considering deconstruction, I've just got three takeaways for you very briefly. Number one, talk to someone about it. Don't be an island. Number two, cling to the Bible at all costs. Usually in deconstruction, the first thing that goes is the Bible. Okay? But if you can have certainty, as Jared reminded us this morning, if you can have certainty concerning the truth and validity of God's word, you will be able to answer the questions that you have. Um, and then thirdly and finally, look to Jesus. He is able to walk with us through our deconstruction struggles. He, is, he invites us to bring our pain to him and our doubts and our questions. And he is kind and compassionate beyond our imagining. So we can trust his goodness. We can trust his wisdom. And we can trust his love. And we can trust what he says. Uh, let me finish with this. John 6, 35 and 40. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I have said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this afternoon. I pray in some way that what we have gone through uh, in this outline and in this lecture will be helpful to us. Firstly, for our own souls, but secondly, maybe for those people that are on our hearts who are tempted to walk away from the faith because of perhaps something that's happened to them, something that they've read online, or having had their worldview shattered. Lord, we, we pray for those people right now that are on our hearts. We ask you to protect them from the fiery darts of the evil one, the lies of this world, the attractions of this world. We pray that in your goodness and grace, you would draw them to yourself as you draw near to them. We pray, Lord, that we would go away from here 
not fearful about the idea of deconstruction, but full of faith that you are a God who is at work in the lives of people, turning sinners to saints, and that you preserve and protect your own and endure us right through to the end. So give us faith, Lord, we pray. May you be glorified in our lives, in our church, and in this world. Amen. Amen. All right. I'm not excused for the panel. This is where I di disappear, you know. So. I'll give you a chair, though. Oh, well, thank you. Here, you sit on that end. Great. JT, you and I will share a mic. Watch me say chair, chair. Yeah, don't get too far away from me. Yeah. Yeah. Good, Nathan, on, uh, on behalf of everybody, thank you for not just the information that you shared, which was worth coming, but the, uh, uh, just the, the aroma of Christ with which you shared it. Uh, the nuance where it needed to be nuanced and very clear where it needed to be clear. So thank you. All my questions are in my pocket. Hang on. I have like 12 here, so I'm just going to give you like three uh, questions to make room for everybody else to, uh, to share. Um, and I'll take, I'll reserve the option to answer my own questions down the road here. Good. Excellent. <laughs> Um, uh, you mentioned, uh, and I think helpfully paused on this issue mm -hmm. uh, to talk a little longer, but I do want to speak to this. Uh, perhaps each of you guys could speak to the category of church hurt mm -hmm. and how we should relate to people who are rejecting the church or struggling with the church because of how they've legitimately been hurt in the church. Mm -hmm. go first? <laughs> Guess you need a break, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I think with regard to church hurt, um, there's there's two things that we need to recognize immediately. That church hurt has also become kind of this buzzword of of kind of a badge of honor in some sense to some individuals. That's not everyone, but that is a sphere out there, especially on social media. So we have to have a category of that. It's like okay. Um, actually, maybe three. Two is oftentimes people will identify with church hurt that is legitimate, that is out there, not what they're experiencing locally. But because the internet has warped the way we think about community, is we can read about church hurt out in Seattle or read about church hurt out in Montana and then internalize that and take what we're reading on the internet and embody it as if it's our own church hurt that we're experiencing locally. And then I forgot what the third one was. <laughs> um, so maybe it, it is just two, because God made that one jump out of my mind. Um, it is to, to remind people, which is exactly what Nathan said at the end, is that we are to cling to, to Jesus, right? Um, the church is full of sinners, right? There's no such thing as a perfect church. And what does Spurgeon say? If there was a perfect church, as soon as we entered into it, it, no, it stopped being a perfect church. Yeah. And... Um, more times than not, churches are trying to do their best, but will do it in a fallible way because it is led by sinful people trying to please the Savior. Mm 
And to understand that regardless of what kind of church hurt you have experienced, that Jesus himself is the same. So churches can cause hurt. Jesus does not. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Jesus is steadfast. Jesus is, is steady. Jesus is full of love, and he never does anything incorrect or wrong or something that is done uh, without love at the center of it. And so helping people uh, differentiate between those different streams of like, is this the badge of honor church hurt? Is this um, a hurt that you're actually experiencing? And where is Jesus in, in the midst of it? And mm-hmm. uh, stepping in to kind of to help them in, in certain ways as well. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, on, on the buzzword uh, thing that JT was just talking about, uh, you know, there are experts in trauma that would that are very concerned with how often trauma is being cited to ex- to talk about experience. If everything's trauma, then nothing's trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have to protect the word mm-hmm. because there's real trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, if everything's church hurt, then nothing's church hurt. Mm-hmm. And But we've got to protect that because there is, and this is where you camped, there really is the abuse of power. And there, there really, those things exist. Mm-hmm. Um, I pray not in your local experience here. I do. If, if, if you're saying, yeah, listen to yourself, uh, then talk to me afterwards. Mm-hmm. But... Um, but yeah, they exist, and the irony is the place, the safest place for a person who has experienced church hurt is a healthy church. Yeah, absolutely. Where they can be loved and cared for and continue to be shepherded. The other thing I'd say about church hurt is that it's often, uh, the, the, for the person who still desires to follow Christ but has been hurt in the church, there's this separation distinguishing between Jesus and his church. And JT was just talking about the church can fail you, of course, but Jesus will not. It's, it's good to distinguish in that way. But to choose Jesus apart from his church is actually a false dichotomy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Jesus' people are in churches mm-hmm. because that's, his, that's the bride of Christ. And so for those who have pulled out of a church because of genuine church hurt, mm-hmm. and they're like, I'm done with the organization. Loving them well is eventually going to be calling them back to the church, yeah, yeah. a church. Maybe not that mm-hmm. church, mm-hmm. but to, to a healthy church. Yeah. Can I, I, I just, I would want to add, I, I, I think the way that you've answered it is fantastic, but I would just want to add, like, where in my experience, I want to help people to differentiate between, like, are you actually, have you been hurt by the church, or are you just offended by something the church has said that just, rates against your own personal experience or um, convictions, etc., or something has just been said in an offensive way. And so I want to just try and you, you want to be very careful to, to not just jump straight to this person is the victim. There are certain, certainly areas of, of church hurt where that person is the victim, but Sometimes you get people who, you know, come and they, they are offended at something, but it's, it might be that they're offended by the truth, but they've taken on this kind of, you have hurt me because you have said something that I disagree with. And I think we want to be careful to, you know, differentiate like prop, real hurt from perceived kind of hurts. Yeah. Uh, just one, one other quick thing. I, I think a lot of us have people in our minds that we're thinking, thinking of who uh, 
would identify with those who have experienced church hurt. And, and I think I think you guys know this, but I just want to say it anyway, like not to lead into those conversations, convincing them that they weren't hurt by the church. I think a lot of times those things are so internalized that the best, best way to do that is to <laughs> exhibit the patience of Christ and mm. walk with mm. them mm. Uh, over a long period of time, continually point to them to the beauty of Jesus, continuing to point mm-hmm. them to the beauty of the gospel, which then can lead to a re-entering into uh, a healthy mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, good. All right, guys, how should we think... Where's that question? All, the, all my questions begin with how. There it is. <laughs> how, how should we understand the state of a person's salvation who once professed the gospel, maybe you mentioned a couple of people who preached the gospel, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but have now deconstructed and left the gospel? Yeah. I mean, I think we all probably know, we may even know someone personally who has done that, but we're all familiar with certain names and, and so forth. Um, Well, I guess what I would like to say, and I don't know, I'd like a little bit more time to think about this, but I, I'd like to say, my first, my first thought that came into my mind is, you know, I don't think Jesus is done writing stories yet in people's lives. I don't think he's done writing stories of redemption in people's lives. So I, I look on at someone like Joshua Harris, um, who, I, you know, I've met a few times. Uh, I w- we're not friends, but, you know, I've met him a few times. And you think, okay, I, I don't know all that went on, I don't know all that happened, but I, I'm saddened at where you're at. And my prayer is I hope that in some way the Lord is going to draw you back at some time because I want to believe that Jesus isn't done writing your story yet. So that's my hope and my prayer. Yeah. Um, it, it would be very difficult to sit here and, you know... and. Uh, I say that, and then I also wrestle with the reality of, of what Paul says to the Ephesians in, in Acts 20. You got to be, you know, people are going to rise up from the inside, wolves. I don't want to put that label on him necessarily, but, but I have to have a context as well for, for that. But my, my primary leaning is I don't believe Jesus is done writing redemption stories yet. Uh, the, only, the only thing I would say is that Judas was out with the disciples casting out demons and doing ministry work as well. And he literally betrayed Jesus himself. And so, um, but we aren't the ones that like, I wouldn't put us in the position to say, well, this must just be another Judas situation. But I would agree with Nathan of like, God's not done writing redemptive stories, praying for that person and doing what only God can do to bring them back. Um, But also to have a category of like, someone being used by God while not still being of God. Um, God is so much bigger than we can think of and will do things that will glorify him in in ways that baffle us and so uh, i think just keeping a category for the for uh the creativity the the nuance and the and the wisdom uh, of god himself yeah you no no no. I, i'm just thinking about like you just got to try and hold together all of those the scriptures that say you know jesus says i of those that the lord has the father has given me i will lose none so i want to have confidence yes. that Christ preserves to the end those who are his. And then there's also the warnings of Hebrews, you know, those who have tasted of the Holy Spirit but walk away, you know, and their hearts are hardened and, and done with. You've got to have those without, you, you've got to hold to both, you know. Yeah. Our temptation is I've got to reconcile it all. That's true and that's true. 
All right, I don't. Yeah. All right, I don't understand. But fortunately, yeah. I'm not God. And yes. and, the, and the well, that's it. The big theological takeaway there is we want to be certain about where other people are. It brings us comfort to mm-hmm. to have a, an assurance mm-hmm. of where someone else is. And with, with the scriptures, at one point, say it plainly. And throughout the scriptures reveal that man looks at the outward appearance <clears throat> and God looks at the heart. We're supposed to judge a tree by its fruit, right? By the mm-hmm. outward appearance. But God looks at the heart. And so this holding these two things together, these intention, reminds us that we are not omniscient, but mm-hmm. God is. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if anything that humbles us is probably for our good. Yeah, good. All right, last one. Uh, it's about progressive Christians. Uh, how should we think about the those who, who are passionate about things that are clearly anti-biblical, but also claim to believe the gospel? Go. To believe the gospel. So the, 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 uh, Nathan used the term progressive Christian. Mm-hmm. Oh, you just as an example, because mm-hmm. uh, we just did our last Renewing Your Mind on this. This would be uh, the, uh, the, the supposedly evangelical who is passionate about gay marriage and mm-hmm. uh, transgender rights and all of that. Uh, that that'd be an example. Mm-hmm. There are many. Yeah, you should definitely go first, JT. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's leadership right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Rob, you go first. Yeah, all right. Um, there's, 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 a, there's a couple thoughts that I have. First is you can really love Jesus and be really wrong. Mm-hmm. We need a category for that. We actually need that category because there are some things we're really confident about. We'll find out on the other side we've been really wrong. Okay? So we just we need the humility to realize mm-hmm. you can really love Jesus and be really wrong. Mm-hmm. Okay? Second of all, the scriptures help us enormously. Because in order for some of these positions that I have in view, maybe the ones you have in view, to actually be held, the scriptures have to be set aside. Okay? Mm-hmm. Now, God takes his word seriously, and we can let him worry about what, what he does with people who set his word aside. Uh, but the, the, the areas that I have in view are very clear in scripture, and we have to bring extra biblical thought to make it say something it doesn't plainly say. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing I'd say is when someone is passionate about Jesus and really passionate about something that's cl- that Jesus would, not, would clearly not be passionate about, we just need to be careful that we're sufficiently self-examining to recognize we have some of those issues in our own lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There are some things we're really passionate about that if, if Jesus had his full say in our lives, he'd probably say, that one's got to go. Mm-hmm. That one's not of me, it's got to go. So I'm not looking to defend the, uh, the progressive Christian. Uh, I, I'm just looking to say, uh, let's stand on truth so we can oppose where we believe that person is wrong without standing in eternal judgment of that person's mm-hmm. soul. Mm-hmm. I, one thing I, 
Sorry, JT, you go first. He doesn't want it. He doesn't want it? Okay. I, I think... I mean, th this is where I was helped by, again, this, this book, because uh, this lady describes her, uh, the challenges that, of the Christian faith that were posed to her from progressive Christians. Uh, and one of the things that she talks about is, you know, we all use the same terms, but we mean very different things by them. And so when you're having a discussion with someone who is passionate about the gospel, well, what do you mean by the gospel? Because your understanding of the gospel and my understanding of the gospel might be very different. And so we want to make sure that we're, talking, we're not just talking past one another, but we're actually saying, what do you mean by that? You know, and make, not making assumptions, not jumping to conclusions. What do you mean by that? Okay, here's what I mean by that. And, and, and um, so just being clear that we're, we're talking the same terms. And then I, I would say as well... Um, which came out like right at the end, and I said to if you're considering deconstruction, you've got to cling to the Bible because you have to have a common reference point. You know, you have to have something that you could say, well, otherwise you just end up like you're over here and you're over here, and but we're not having any common ground. But if you can cling to the Bible as, as saying, this is, I believe that this is the inerrant, infallible authoritative, sufficient word of God that can be understood, that it, it, there's a, a perspicuity to it, there's a clear reading of it that can be understood, that we can build our lives upon. Can we agree on that? They'll probably say no, but at least you, you say, well, I, that's where I go. So we, I can't have this conversation because we've got no common ground. But, so those two things just are additional thoughts. Yeah, I don't think this is adding on to this. This might be a different thought. But just, um, uh, maybe it's not a different thought. But if people who are considering deconstruction or different things, I would, I would just also say to be really on guard um, because the, the, the way it works, especially through social media, is the people who are leading these, like, you know, there's like a whole section of each social media that is uh, devoted to deconstructions, like deconstruction, TikTok, and all these different kind of things. Of the people are really winsome um, as they kind of lure you in. Like, they're not going to be, like, eventually they'll get to kind of like the, the bashing and beating of the church, but oftentimes they're, they're witty, uh, they're humorous, they're, they're fun, they're charismatic personalities that kind of slowly draw you in, and they won't define all their terms up front. So, for example, there, there's a guy who, who leads this movement called the New Evangelicals. It's like, oh, New Evangelicals, that sounds kind of nice. What is that? And then he started putting up some stuff about uh, ethnic justice. And I was like, I can get down with some of this. What is this guy? Didn't take more than 10 minutes, but I had to search for where he stood on the authority of the Bible. And the dude was off, completely off. He would set the Bible aside to pursue these other things. So even if you see something that's small, it's just like, okay, this is kind of good. What is this? You have to make sure you understand the terms that they're defining. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because that's where a lot of us end up, you know, say, say you didn't do a deep dive on that guy. You start following him for a while. Then all of a sudden you're surrounded in all these other different beliefs. But he's already won you over with his charismatic personality. And now you're starting to question different things. This is where you start to do uh, the deconstruction in the dark, right? Mm -hmm. And so always do those things in the light. Always know who uh, you're following and who you're listening to. Mm -hmm. uh, it's good to vet those kind of guys. Yeah. Mm -hmm. 
which uh, the last uh, thought I'll share here, and then we'll kick it open for questions, is actually not a question, but it was a note I made as you were teaching, that deconstruction inevitably leads to an equally large set of doctrines that you've got mm -hmm. to unwaveringly affirm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay? And woe to you from the culture should you waver from your new deconstructed mm -hmm. doctrines. Right. Yeah. Right? So you're not leaving the confines of the oppressive gospel of Jesus Christ for the freedom and liberty of individual thought. Mm -hmm. you're, you're entering a community that has a fixed doctrine, whichever it is, mm -hmm. a fixed doctrine. It's an anti-Christian doctrine, but a fixed doctrine that if you're like, ah, I'm not sure I'm down with that idea, they will, cr they will clamp on you until you bend the knee or you will be an outcast there as well. So it, 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 it's not freedom from to, to get freedom to something. It's, it, it, it's I'm stepping out of what I perceive to be confining to something I do not yet perceive as confining, but it mm -hmm. will be. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, all right. I hope that encourages you. Uh, with, with, that in, with that in view, let me take questions. Stephen Taylor's up first. Go ahead. Let me repeat the question for the, for the recording. That's okay. Um, the, the question ultimately is, how do we as a church uh, protect ourselves or, or, or make sure that we don't elevate practice over biblical principle or add things to be equal with the gospel that, that have no business being at that level? Mm -hmm. um, well, you, you just got here. So. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> I, I don't know the answer to that. So. <laughs> Do you want to go first? I got lots of thoughts, but I'm sure you do too. Um, yeah, I, I, there's. So, how do we do that? Uh, I think fostering healthy communication between the pastors and the church is one thing. Uh, we we want to be a pastoral team who's never above or beyond being questioned about what we teach. Uh, it's a way to clear up misunderstanding, but it's also a way to catch where we're in error, intending to be helpful, where we may have overstepped. So, or the opposite, for you to realize, no, we actually do need to step there, and the church needs to allow us to. Right? So that healthy communication with the church, I do think uh, making sure that when we illustrate biblical principles... We try to use more than one manifestation of that principle and not just one. Because if, if, we, if, if we teach the biblical principle and then we only give 
one example of what it looks like, and we do that enough, it feels like what we're doing is teaching the example. Mm -hmm. But if we teach, here's various ways this could look. Or we don't always want to use illustrations from one stage of life. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we want to make sure that the, the whole church is in view, which will help us understand as a body that, that principles can look like many practices. While holding, and this is the other side of it, uh, that biblical principles look like something. If they're just held in the principal form and they never look like anything, we're not doing the good works of the gospel, right? So when you're called by the church to practice the gospel, that's not legalism. That's application, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and so that, that, that's the way the pendulum has swung on these things. When, when a church has made mistakes over here, we just stop applying. And we avoid the problem of being legalistic but now nobody's doing and what the Bible's calling us to do, mm-hmm. right? So, so that the way how the way we hold middle, I think, is prayerful. Team ministry is big. Mm-hmm. Having a team that's not all monolithic, and you have a team that is not monolithic. Mm-hmm. If you're like, oh my gosh, you guys seem to all think the same, just attend one of our elders' meetings. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and it's not like we got one dominant voice and a whole lot of passive voices. No. <laughs> No, they're, they're, they're energized elders' meetings. Uh, but, but as long as we're all pursuing Jesus, that holds us in tension with one another yeah. mm-hmm. and actually sharpens us moving mm-hmm. forward. Mm-hmm. Oh, you want to add to that? And I could say, coming from the outside, that, that's, that's an accurate perspective. Like, I watch these guys, you know, disagree honorably and in godly ways, push back on, on ideas, challenge one another. Done with humility, done with the best interests of the church in view, done with the glory of Jesus in view. So I just would commend them. You know, I don't think, uh, yeah, I think I, it's a great team to be part of. And um, God has blessed this church with a great team. And not a, not a lot of churches have the, that blessing, I can tell you. So, yeah. Ben, I'll come over here. And then over there. Uh, well, you're, you're number five. Okay. All right. Go. <laughs> great question the question is to what degree should we personally be wary of deconstruction uh and the observation was made you know it's likely nobody here plans to deconstruct but it happens so we shouldn't pretend it can't happen to us uh how how should how should we be wary and Mm -hmm. maybe how in what way Mm -hmm. i I know i think i I have an illustration I, i i think it's a good one We'll tell just, you just, just, yeah, just kind of get, get, we'll kick, yeah. Kick, so, going off of the Jenga illustration you went through, mm-hmm. right? So, if if you think about your faith, right, the things that you don't want to shake are those foundational, like the things at the very bottom. So, in Jenga, if you're good, you're probably not going. to, I mean, unless you're wild, you're not going to take the things off the bottom because that shakes the whole structure. But those like middle ones, sometimes you can move some of those around, and you end up having a taller tower than you did in the beginning. But the bottom is still sure. So I think as you grow up, especially people who grew up in this church, right, there may be things that aren't bottom level 
doctrinal like things, foundations that we cannot shake. Like uh, the Bible is authoritative and Jesus died and rose again for our sins and we need to follow what the Bible says. Like those bottom level things are, um, are necessary and needed. It can't be, can't be moved around. The Jenga block, the Jenga tower will fall over. But there's other things, you can make me give an example of this too. I will. <laughs> but there's other things that are closer to the top of like where wisdom categories are needed and there is a room for nuance while still staying in the orthodox face where you can take it and place it in a, in a different spot um, while still staying orthodox. And it's not like your faith is, is jumping around. It's actually deepening your faith when you wrestle it and just uh, and kind of remove it from just the, this is what my parents did, so I'm going to do this as well, where it kind of becomes your own. That's what I experienced when I was uh, in college, right? So I'm away from home for the first time, figuring out my faith, and I'm going to these different churches and saying, okay, like, there's no foundation here. What what do I need as I'm, as I'm going forth to make sure that the faith is actually my own? And in God's kindness, I landed in a gospel preaching church. And I think some of the blocks I removed as I was growing up were actually, um, I was removing bad blocks <laughs> from, from where I grew up. And the blocks I was putting in were actually stronger and helped me solidify my faith. So there is a wrestling that ends up in a stronger conviction of what you believe. Mm-hmm. Ben, just to, I, there's a couple of things I'd say. Um, my mind has gone blank now. A couple of things would be, uh, you know, we shouldn't be fearful that we're going to deconstruct our faith because we have a doubt or we have a question about something. Like somehow it's a, the, the slippery slope is going to inevitably lead to me apostatizing. So we want to be careful that we don't have that fear. You know, we should feel, we should feel free to raise our questions and doubt, like we're saying, like bring them into the light, bring them into community, make sure, you know, if you keep them in your own head, that's, that's going to be a very bad thing, you know. But, you know, bringing them to someone, bringing someone into our questions, into our struggles has got to be a, a healthy way because then that person can help you, that person can direct you, that person can, you know, encourage you. Um, so I don't, I don't want us to be fearful of deconstruction like it's somehow an inevitable an inevitability. But I would also want to say on the, on the flip side that our faith can weaken and dissolve if neglected. And so we want to make sure that we are, you know, not doing that. That we're actually, you know, proactively putting, you know, pursuing Christ in his word. You know, uh, so that our faith doesn't weaken and dissolve. It may not end up in deconstruction, but there is a, the reality is, you know, some people their faith does because of neglect. You know, it weakens and and dissolves. Um, and so we want to be aware of that. You know, that there this this is something that's not gonna it it's not gonna just remain. You know, the Christian faith. I, I'm just trying to think of an illustration, but it's, it you know if I if I don't if I don't, no, no, no. I, that's that's an old illustration. Who would use that? Uh, uh, you know, it's not faith is not just like a you know, uh, it's not going to remain in its in in without attention. It's only going to with it's going to be neglected and it's going to dissolve. It needs to be, you know, pursued. We need to be actively 
keeping ourselves in the faith, if you know what I mean, you know, pursuing Christ, you know. And so I want to make sure, so I'd say, you know, you want to make sure that that is a priority, you know. And if that's not happening, then again, bring that to someone else and ask for help and accountability. You know, I feel like my faith is waning, you know, and I'm concerned about that. And I think, you, do, you know, if, if you feel that, you know, this may sound a little bit absurd, but that should be an encouragement that the Spirit is at work in us because if we, we wouldn't see that, you know, if the Spirit of God wasn't, I think, alive and at work in us in some way. Um, yeah, there's, there's just a couple of thoughts. I, I think one more thing quick would just be to <clears throat> learn from examples of people who have gone before you that wrestled with their faith and came out stronger. So two quick examples. Uh, the Francis Schaeffer, I don't know if you've ever read his autobiography or read uh, biographies about him, but um, his time, the time that he that was briefly mentioned in, in the teaching is an incredible story of when he kind of abandoned the faith for a while um, and then just doubled down on it and kind of how he came out on the other side. Another quick example would be Frederick Douglass, right? So he would talk about the Christianity of the land and the Christianity of the Bible, where he would see, you know, uh, his owners beating him, beating his family, and then going in, uh, beating their slaves, and then going in and leading devotions with the family. He's like, this doesn't make any sense. So did he abandon the faith altogether? No, he differentiated this is a Christianity of the land and the Christianity of the Bible and how he came through on the other side with an even stronger faith. Um, so two examples would be that. Good. That's good. And I've got some, some very, very practical things. First, when you bring things into the light, particularly for younger people, like teens, early 20s, uh, of course, bring them into your peer group, but ask your questions of people older than you. Yeah, that's good. Because just about everybody in your peer group is asking some of these questions, <laughs> mm -hmm. and that's wonderful. And it's good to do that together, so there's nothing wrong with that. But don't expect people that have been alive for as long as you have and grew up in the same church have all the answers you don't. Mm -hmm. Right? So get comfortable talking to people that are older than you, more experienced. Um, I'll stop there. John. Yeah, the, the question mm -hmm. is about, just repeating it, and you can mm -hmm. speak to where you pulled the stat, and we can go from there. Mm -hmm. uh, the question is, way back in the introduction, Nathan mentioned 60% of, of those who grew up in the church deconstruct. Uh, and uh, the, the question is just seeking, you know, is there more context for that? How many of those people come back to the faith? Are they included in the statistic or not? Like, just more scope of what that means. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I found those statistics. I was listening to a podcast uh, and someone was just throwing it out there. They weren't necessarily kind of, didn't give any, you know, real context or specifics. But there was a book that I read as well for this, which was called The Great Dechurching. Uh, it's a recent book, yellow book. I think if you, go, you know, put that into Amazon, it would come up. And that is a, a, a research study that's done about why people are leaving the church and, and what happens to them. Uh, it, and it's not just like millennials. It's, it's a whole generational pattern so that might be a place where you could get some statistics and some thoughts from because it's a pretty comprehensive study uh, but you know of American Christianity so one thought on that stat is I think the number is going to depend entirely on when you ask the question 
if you if you're picking off questions, uh, getting answers from people that have just been through four years of God heating university, mm -hmm. uh, you may get a different number mm -hmm. than when adult being an adult teaches them a lot of reality they didn't get in college mm -hmm. when they're 27, 30, 32. So uh, it just, I think it depends where you, where, when you ask that question, mm -hmm. how large or small that number yeah. is. Yeah. I think that's why, because, you know, 88% of statistics are made up on the spot. So you just need to make, <laughs> you know, you just need to make sure that, you know, when you're dealing with statistics, yeah. you just, you know, you just, that there's only so much that they can tell us, you know. And if we're talking in the abstract, I don't want you, anybody thinking about your kids or your loved ones right now. Just get up into the academic world, right? A message that is so opposed to how fallen we are, the fact that we have a 40% success rate is pretty incredible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, Jesus is batting 25%, isn't he, in the parable of the soils? <laughs> so, you know. That would be a small sample size. Um, <laughs> right, I, I had called on Solomon, and then Honey, and then I'll come back to Doug. So. How would your approach to witnessing to someone who's unsaved but using these arguments about the hypocrisy in the church, things like that, uh, how does this inform how we might witness to an unbeliever? Uh, I would actually jump back to Re Rebecca uh, McLaughlin. Yes. Is that her mm -hmm. She wrote that book called The Secular Creed. It's, it's, it's so good because it takes those arguments that people would use and just kind of shows that they're all foiled, like they're, they're not true. Mm -hmm. So I, would, I wouldn't hand that book out, but I would read that book, digest some of that information, and then lovingly walk with that person through, kind of walk through each of the, the uh, segments of that kind of secular creed, which would uh, lead to a lot of the deconstruction as well, and uh, talk them through that. Yeah, secular mm -hmm. creed uh, is, is a great introduction to the way Rebecca McLaughlin thinks. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also smaller than the one Nathan held up. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's not as wide or as long, or as thick, right? Um, it's fantastic. It just takes five of the doctrines that the secular puts out there, and then the chapter is saying how that's it's simply not true, and here's the biblical worldview. Uh, the, the methodology of someone who raises that, uh, apologetics are fantastic to have in our head and to know but uh, let me recommend, I think it's either chapters 8 and 9 or chapters 9 and 10. It's either one of those two of uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, where Paul Tripp teaches you how to ask questions that draw out the heart of the person you're talking to. Mm -hmm. So if this unbeliever says those things, you know, hey, it seems like you know, you've had experience with the church before. Can you tell me what your experience is? Well, I've never been, but I've... Oh, if you've never been, how do you know so much about the church, right? Mm -hmm. um, and if you have been, what they've experienced matters a lot in how you witness to them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So those two chapters, it's either 8 and 9 or 9 and 10. Uh, one of those chapters, I think it might be 9, has like 50, a list of like 50 questions. Mm -hmm. that you, if you just come, become familiar with that list, uh, it, it then equips you a bit with question you could ask in that moment 
that is intended to take a step further into their experience, into their heart, uh, almost never is the, is the core of the issue that the objection they raise. It comes mm -hmm. from somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so if we can learn to be people that don't go for the easy bait here, the sniping, but we get under that and we step toward the person, mm -hmm. we actually get to minister where they're hurting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands by yeah. Paul Tripp. Yeah, if we were to throw it out book recommendations, Michael Ramsden, no, I forget who it is, but no, uh, no, it's not him. But the book is called, it's Randy Newman, and he wrote Questioning Evangelism. Yes. And it's that, it's that similar idea yes. of, you know, someone comes with a question about, you know, how does a good God allow suffering? And you can bat it away with an apologetics answer. But actually what he, his process is, there's a question that's behind that question. And it might be, why did my grandma die of cancer? And so they don't want it dealt with at this level. They want it dealt with at this level, you know. Yeah. And so it's just, it's being a wise to like, okay, there's something that precipitated this question that actually is the real de the issue here. And I need to get to that to really help that person. But that's a great book. Okay, hang on. Honey, I'd already called on. And then Doug. And then we'll see if we have time for more questions. If not, we can answer them after. But we're, I told you I'd be done with you at four. Mine's Go ahead. super easy. Oh, good. Low level, honey. Um, so... <laughs> John had asked part of my question. I wanted clarity on that quote. But so, is are we saying that re deconstruction, deconstructing? That's okay. Are we saying that it's mainly from people growing up in the church that are doing this, or is it? Are we seeing it in people who you know along the way? Maybe they came into Christianity through something else in high school or college, and then later came out. Or is it something we're mainly seeing? So the question is, uh, when we use the word deconstruction or deconstructing, it, does it have in, uh, primarily in view those who have grown up with the ch in the church that fall away, or other people that come you know, through bridge or whatever later in life, and that are, are they also able to deconstruct? Yeah. From what I read and studied, it seems to be that that 60%, like, statistic that we threw out is from people who grew up in the church who then deconstruct after high school. So I, I think the most common seems to be amongst the, the younger generation and it's because they they grew up in this you know in this digitally connected world. And so something that happened like I remember like in my little corner of Bristol when when the, all, everything was kicking off with Driscoll in Seattle, it was affecting people in my church. And you think, how is this possible? It's like 8,000 miles away. Mm -hmm. But it's because the world has shrunk. Mm -hmm. And y young people, you know, when I, I mean, I, I think I'm young. I'm 45 years old. But, you know, I grew up, we didn't have mobile phones. We didn't, you Half know, I remember. the room thinks you're young too, Dan. Yeah, well, uh, <laughs> the other half's not convinced. No. <laughs> I am young, you know. I'll just claim it. Yeah, um, you know. I when, but I but I I grew up. We didn't have mobile phones. It was dial-up internet. You know, by the time I was eighteen or something, it wasn't even like, you know, something that happened in Seattle. I had no knowledge of, you know, or whatever. But now we live in a in a world where particularly like. My son Devon at three is swiping on an iPad or whatever. You know, he's 10 now. He's got square eyes because he's been grown up like <laughs> being parented by a, you know, a third parent that's the screen. You know what I mean? And so I, th so I think it is, a it, it is predominantly a generational thing. 
But I think there's, there are older people that are still doing it. And it's primarily because here I, here's, I grew up in this, in this church and it was told me, you have to believe this. And I went every week and, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then I got to high school, or I got to college and boom, my eyes were opened. And I just saw, oh, there's a different way of thinking about this. And that, that's generally the pathway. So, um, uh, and so I want to be like, for pa- you know, as a parent, you don't want to be scared. You want to be, you, you be knowledgeable that this is, this is the world that they're living in now. So I need right. to be not fearful, but prepared. Yeah. Good. We actually have an entire parenting seminar that specifically, it was done two years ago, specifically focused on parenting in, uh, in a screen-filled world. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a whole, we spent a whole Saturday on that topic. Doug. Mm-hmm. John, you've started a trend. Well, yeah. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the question is, how much of that sixty percent is kids that were raised in the culture of the church, but perhaps never actually converted, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. right? Um, and yeah, I, I liken it to the fact, to the statistic that fifty percent of marriages in the church end in divorce. I find that to be summarily untrue. Summarily untrue. When both spouses are saved and they're following Jesus, that that stat drops tremendously. Yes. Yeah. Um, but. To say 50% of church-going marriages end in divorce may actually end up being true. Uh, Because I hope there's none here, but there's a lot of unbelievers who go to church. Mm -hmm. I mean, when I lived in Little Rock, honestly, you could not find a person that wasn't a member of an evangelical church. Mm. They were all members of evangelical churches. And I can tell you they were not all believers. Mm. But it's just you go to church on Sunday because, you know, you, you need to get your casserole from somewhere. Um, <laughs> yeah, we have time. There's a sorry. There's yeah, a there's one there and well. two. I was going to yeah. do two more. The, the, the hand back there, and there's a hand here, right? So we're going to stop questions after this one, okay? But I, I don't know your name. Can you tell me your name? Susan. Susan, go ahead, please. Good. So that was that was just someone sharing First Peter three fifteen to sixteen yeah. about being prepared to give an answer for the hope that lies within you, but doing so yeah. in a Christ-like manner. Yeah. Um, it's our hope that that'd be your experience out here, renewing your mind during mm-hmm. these things. But uh, sadly, and you all can affirm this, this is not the predominant experience of social media debates mm-hmm. about these mm-hmm. things. Uh, people are ready to give an answer but not in kindness and gentleness. Mm-hmm. Um, and Nathan alluded to this, but
But if people are going to be turned away, let it be because of the clarity of truth and not because of your ungodly conduct in communicating yeah. truth. Yeah. All right, last question. It's a great question. The question is, uh, is it possible for a genuine Christian to deconstruct in the most destructive way that was mentioned in demolishing the church and, and abandoning the faith totally? And if, if we would say yes, there was a gauntlet thrown down. How do you, rec <laughs> how do you recognize, reconcile that with what the Bible says? Um, I just got done talking. Yeah, you, do one you of you guys go. want to go? Yeah, take two guys. Yeah, you haven't talked in a while. Yeah. Come on. I got it. Because <laughs> uh, we got kickoffs 425. I'm never, I'm never short. <laughs> uh, here's what we know. Uh, keep in mind the fact that when Nathan was saying God is not done writing redemptive stories. So let, let, let me say, do I think it's possible for a genuine Christian to be so disillusioned in their faith that they go for an extended period of time even attacking the church? Do I think it's possible for that person to, in the end, reveal that they have been saved? I think that's possible because uh, the story isn't done being written yet. Um, however, uh, on the basis of Scripture and the security and the, per and the perseverance of the saints, uh, I, 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 we would say as a church it's not possible for someone who is genuinely converted to end up in an unconverted state, mm. okay? Uh, uh, the Hebrews, it's one of the most controversial passages in all the New Testament, but it's come up now three times. So let me, uh, <laughs> let me go there. Oh, I'm in Hebrews in my, in my Bible, good. Hebrews 6, oh, I don't have to find the book. Verse 4, Hebrews 6, verse 4 and following. It is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. Uh, let me summarize that. Uh, there's a couple words that's important for you to know to understand what is being said here. Uh, first is enlightened. It doesn't say saved. The other word is tasted. Uh, tasted. The, the, it, it's the, the, the Greek word talks about uh, the taking off the tip of a spoon. Okay? The, may you, the way you might taste soup to see if it's hot. Okay? Um, we have people that come here that are not saved, that go to Bridge and they're not saved. What do they experience there? They experience Christian hospitality. They experience generosity. They experience the, you know, the warmth and the kindness that Jim brings. They experience fellowship in their small groups. And what are they doing there in their unregenerate state? They're tasting. They're tasting what Christianity is like. 
They're in our services and they experience prophetic ministry and it may really emotionally affect them. What are they doing? They're tasting. Maybe they have a real sense of God. They're enlightened. <coughs> There's lots of stories, sadly, of those people falling away. Hmm. They've gotten so close. They, they, were, they were among us, but they were not of us. Uh, if, we, if we're quick to call them Christians, then there's a long line of Christians who have fallen away. But we know that can't be because the scriptures are clear, right? So, so it, it doesn't surprise any of us that people may enjoy what they experience here, what they experience of God, come up against something that's really hard, not be able to <clears throat> reconcile that, and they pull away. Hmm. Okay, Are they capable of the worst kind? Yes. But there is a security we have in Christ. Ephesians 1 says that we are given the Spirit of God as a guarantee, as a down payment, as a deposit, that Christ is coming back for us. We're marked by the Spirit of God, and none can take one sheep out of his hands. Okay, So there's a permanence to salvation. And what we find in those who have professed but fall away is that, that they may have genuinely thought, genuinely been sincere in their profession, but either their story, their redemptive story isn't done being written, or they are the, the seed that fell among the weeds, that grew up, but was eventually choked out. Uh, they're hard things, and this is where we've got to realize that we do not look at the inner man, God looks at the inner man, but the theological question you're asking is that genuine believers persevere until the end and don't fall away. Mm -hmm. no. Do you want to add anything to that? No. You can disagree with it if you no, want. No, no, no. Nope. I mean, I'm coming back at you if you disagree. No, no. With well, it. it's, I was just going to read the Jude doxology. Go. Oh, come on. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. We should finish with that, yeah. Yeah. And notice who's the primary acting agent here. Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling mm. and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. 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 God, we thank you that you are the God who is able to keep us. <laughs> we thank you that you are a God who has chosen to keep us. Lord, we who are full of sin and doubt and would twist your words, you have made us blameless through the death of Jesus Christ. Yes. So thank you for giving us Christ. Thank you that he was perfect. Thank you that you knew exactly what, what we needed and you provided what we needed for us, Lord. Mm -hmm. God, we do pray that you would strengthen our faith, yes. that you would help mm. us to be those who can lovingly go into the field to those who are deconstructing and would present them with the beauty of Christ <laughs> and mm. present them with the beauty of the church, that we would not be shaken ourselves, that you would keep us, but that we would be those who joyfully expound upon the beauties of the gospel, <laughs> mm. that we will be drawn more and more evermore to Christ himself in his gospel and what he's done for us, would you use us, the people in this room, who all have connections to those who are deconstructing, mm -hmm. uh, uh, to, be, to stand in the way <laughs> and to be used as agents of those who are helping them uh, uh, to not stumble, to not fall away, um, 
so that your gospel may be glorified, so that people's hearts and their affections would continuously be raised for Jesus Christ. We love you and thank you for your grace in our lives. Amen.